Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Market Watch podcast by Amplify Live where you can access the latest market insights with me, Anthony Chung, the Head of Market Analysis and joined by our Head of Trading, Piers Curran, getting you up to speed on what mattered in markets this week. Okay, welcome, welcome. Episode 33, and it's a unique one. Uh, this is Piers Curran here. I'm not joined by Anthony Chung for the first time in the Market Watch podcast history. And he's going to regret that because I'm joined by Eddie Donmez instead. And we're like, uh, we're like two kids that have just been given the key to the sweet shop. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go at this. And I don't know, the wheels are going to come off. Ant's not going to be happy. Um, but let's see where this takes us. Um, just as a kind of top level overview, we'll have a quick rundown of uh, some of the things that have been going on this week globally, um, so stuff like China, um, some some worse than expected data. We'll talk a bit about COVID there. We've had a Hurricane Ida, which generally speaking has been hitting the Gulf of Mexico, but it's, it's kind of just about missed some of the major oil producing facilities. And so uh, come away from that relatively unscathed oil prices have edged higher and actually spiked up through $70 uh, today. So, so multi-week highs, but that's not really necessarily uh, hurricane related. Uh, we've had political upheaval. Uh, Japanese PM Suga has announced he's going to resign. Uh, this is off the back of, um, well, very heavily criticized uh, response and strategy against COVID. And so he's felt he's going to have to step down, uh, staying in the political arena. Biden has got a bit of a new headache because we've been, as investors, we've been kind of tracking this fiscal stimulus journey through Congress. And, you know, we've had plenty of steps forward. And obviously, there's always plenty of steps back. Um, so a guy called Joe Manchin has kind of put the latest spanner in the works. So he's the West Virginia 
Democrat senator, and he's demanding what he termed as a strategic pause um, in action on, on Biden's economic agenda. So this, this could kind of, at the very least, delay this $3.5 trillion tax package. So this has kind of been going off um, over in the States. But I think what we'll focus on as well later is a bit of single stock stuff. We've had a lot of uh, well, some some heavy downside in certain stocks like Robinhood and Zoom. Um, so we're going to get Eddie's views um, on all of that stuff and kind of cyclicals um, most generally. Um, but before we kind of get into the payrolls and stuff, um, what's going on, Eddie? I, f- I feel a little bit, uh, God, yeah, I just feel like we can do whatever we want here. I, know, I feel crazy. like, yeah, Ant's not here. It's like the, the parent's not here to to police us and we've got free reign at all of this but it's all going well um been really uh, cracking on with the amplify me project and the new release uh, that we've got coming on september the 15th so really really looking forward to that so i've actually seen a lot of anthony face uh over over zoom we've been on uh, pretty much eight hour a day zoom calls which has been uh interesting probably more uh unpleasurable for him than me looking at my my mug all day but it's been good uh you know well it's going to be big news on that we're actually going to drop a a a midweek podcast next week on wednesday which is going to be fully focusing on our big big new launch the amplify me platform is is going to land on september the 15th and um it's going to be a you know one of the big moments of the year uh so yeah, more more on that next week uh, uh, on the podcast. But look, Eddie, we've had um, always one of the kind of big um, moments of the month when it comes to the macro calendar. We've had the U.S. labor market report um, delivered to us uh, today. It's the first Friday of the month, so uh, traditionally this is when the U.S. government release their, their kind of economic data related to the labor market, and these are measurements for the month that's just finished. So we've just been hit by a whole bunch of data um, for August, and I mean I've traded. I don't know. I'd have to calculate it. Can I do that in my head? I don't know. I've traded twenty years worth of non-farm payroll numbers. Um, so what is that? that? That's kind of knocking on the door of 290 non-farm payrolls figures. Um, and I have to say, today's was one of the most uh, one of the most mixed reports I, I think I've ever seen. Um, the problem with when you're trading these events is if you're getting data released when there's a whole bunch of different numbers being announced all simultaneously then it is it does ramp up the risk levels for traders or, or just makes it more difficult to to trade it especially when what happened today we got conflicting information where some of this labor market report were, was bad news and then some of it was well well good news or what we'll debate whether uh, inflationary pressures are good in a minute but let me just give you the rundown um, of the top level numbers and then Eddie we'll get your kind of thoughts on uh, on what you what you reckon. So uh, as always, the headline reading, the non-farm payrolls number, which is tracking the um, number of jobs created in the month of August. So we were looking for a figure of 720,000. Um, and the July reading uh, prior to that was up around 950,000. Okay, so we were expecting 720 and it came in at 235,000. So a proper 
lowball number. And actually, just to kind of make it even worse, it's the worst reading for the whole year. So it's the it's the lowest print of the whole of 2021. And, you know, quite, quite, quite surprising on the one hand, we had had some worse than expected uh, sort of labor market related data earlier in the week with the private sector ADP employment report also coming in very negatively. But that it's not always a great lead indicator that, although it was this time. So yeah, job creation was really low. Um, but uh, to offset that, um, the average hourly earnings, so that's the part of the report that's tracking wage growth, came in really bullish and actually double what was expected. So on average, wages went up 0.6% in August, um, rather than the expected 0.3%. And that put it at the best reading, the best monthly gain, at least since since May. Um, finally, just that unemployment rate uh, came in line with expectations, dropped further to 5.2% uh, from July's 54 But in June, it was 57 So just in two months, we've, we've dropped half a percent on that unemployment rate, which is which is pretty solid. But yeah, the, the two talking points, Eddie, are that really bad non-farm payrolls figure, but then that really strong average hourly earnings. I mean, how, how do you kind of digest that? And what's your overall takeaway? Yeah, I think in summary, it's bad economic data and inflationary pressure. Um, yeah. To me, that points to, and we'll probably hear that in the, this word in the press or over the next coming days, stagflation. So, I know it's a punchy word, but you know we've got you know lower jobs created two three five versus seven twenty. The economy looks to be slowing down faster uh, than expected, meaning that the Fed are less likely to to taper their bond purchases. But we have inflation and inflationary pressures, and this is not only in the kind of wage pressures that you you see kind of all across the board. Um, kind of labor shortages, um, people just can't get the employees. You know, they're, they're raising wages. If it's Morgan Stanley raising, raising first-year analyst pay to 110,000, you know, in the kind of banking and private equity space, but it, it, all the way down to, you know, the firms like Walmart really, you know, paying people more uh, to really, you know, encourage them to work. So this inflationary pressure we're seeing not, not only in asset prices, uh, but in supply chains, so the input goods uh, and costs uh, for you know firms to produce things, but also uh, in the wa- wages. You know, if it, if this inflation keeps running hotter than expected, then the Fed really has no choice, arguably, um, to taper. So this kind of is reflective, and you know, I, I was kind of uh, speaking with with you uh, beforehand. We're seeing really weak economic data arguably across the board, you know, all over the world, you know, starting with China, uh, and it's you know, really being fueled by rising COVID cases. So in the 15 major providences, there's huge uh, kind of uh, outbreaks in, in COVID, weak services, PMIs, a really weak credit impulse, um, you know, in China, but really in, in the G3, and that tends to lead global manufacturing P- PMIs, weak retail sales, reining in of uh, M2 money growth, uh, and that non-manufacturing PMI was actually the f- in China was actually the first contraction in 16 months. Uh, we in Europe we had the, a really weak ZEW economic sentiment survey. Uh, if you're looking at the kind of high frequency data, 
in August, and obviously we're just in September now, so we've got some of the August kind of high frequency data, you know, travel, hotels, uh, airlines, that type of uh, kind of mobility data is really flashing warning signs uh, in terms of, you know, COVID uh, and the emergence of that. So it's causing COVID's really rearing its head again in that kind of second wave. We're obviously seeing almost record cases in the US. It, you know, I think some commentators are pointing to that, you know, potentially peaking over the next couple of weeks, which is obviously a good thing. But globally, the adoption of this kind of zero COVID policy, especially what we're seeing in Australia, New Zealand and China, is really wreaking havoc with the supply chains. Uh, and of course, this puts a lot of pressure on firms' margins, right? So generally, um, firms and their earnings, we're talking across the board, have actually been really, really strong this year. Um, but with this kind of inflation and the inflation of the input goods, this is going to erode the profit margins of some of these firms. So this is what uh, I think is really, really quite worrying at the moment, especially what we've what we've seen just out of that data release. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, when you kind of lay it all out like that, it it is kind of cause for concern. Um, and I, yeah, I'd, I'd maybe say, especially on that economic data front, it, it's all of a sudden deteriorated and really to the worst point we've seen for, for for many months but it's almost like in a way this data this afternoon it's kind of it's kind of the worst of both worlds isn't it in so much as you get the the global jobs number but it's combined with with much higher wage growth so, so it's almost like from the fed's point of view it's almost like because that wage growth number is inflationary it's almost like, well, the, the economy's just weakening just as we're getting this COVID hit, but we're going to have to go ahead with tapering anyway, because you know ultimately the biggest worry is that inflation spike not being transitory. I mean, I think that, that would be the major game changer for not only the shorter term hedge funds and, and so on, but actually more kind of long-term portfolios as well. I think most people, most kind of, financial analysts, most investors have kind of been just, myself included, by the way, kind of just steadily going through 2021 on the assumption that inflation is transitory and it's going to come back down. And whilst on the one hand, that's kind of supply side COVID kind of related um, price spikes, sure, they can come back down. Although the Delta variant now puts a risk on that, but you know they they should be temporary those kind of influences if and when we get properly to the other side of covid but when you're then seeing on the demand side when you're then seeing these wages kind of step properly higher that actually for me is is perhaps the most concerning and and, and something that that may well force the fed's hand and look fine you know they're going to taper we know that and comfort and markets have been very comfortable with this i mean obviously um, we'll talk about price reaction in a second, but you know, before today, stocks have been you know chalking all-time highs every day, right? So we're we're very comfortable with the idea of tapering, and so we're kind of moved on to yeah, find the timing of when it starts. But it's you know, it's going to be what November, December, or January, so it's not going to make too much odds. But it's the speed, you know, are the Fed going to have to accelerate tapering if inflation is this inflation spike is is kind of less transitory than, than they were hoping. And, and for me, I think that's probably one of the big risks. But if we just kind of look at 
kind of drill down into the super short term of price reaction today, I, I think it tells a story. I mean, I'm just looking at the S&P chart and, you know, when you get conflicting data, you know, bad non-farm payrolls, but really strong wage growth, you, you always get a lot of volatility, you get a lot of two-way price action. Um, and indeed, you know, sort of 35 minutes after the data, the S&P had gone up, it had gone down, but actually it was kind of back to where it started. But since then, we have kind of just taken at that downside bias. And, and for reasons we've just said, whereby whilst it's, it's bad news on the economy, but the Fed are going to have to taper anyway because of that inflationary wage growth data. So in the end, stocks are trading, like the S&P is trading. It's not much. It's like, um, it's like 15, 17 points below where we are trading before the data, where we are trading before the data being all-time ever highs. Um, the dollar, um, again, yeah, a lot of volatility. But if you look at things like euro dollar, let's say, um, euro dollar exchange rate trading just shy of that 119 handle and basically a lot of volatility, but it's hardly moved in the grand scheme of things. The dollar hasn't budged too much. Um, if, if anything, it's marginal weakness. Um, but then when you're looking at T-notes, I think that's that's one of the markets that's had the most interesting reaction in a way because T-notes spiked higher initially because that non-farm payrolls number, this is prices spiking higher because payrolls number was really weak. Then it reversed. And actually, it's the wage growth figure that's been way inf more influential on, on T-notes prices um, than on most other assets here. Um, as kind of yields tick up in response to that inflationary wage growth data. And then just kind of finally just going around the houses on markets here to contradict that T-note move entirely, gold uh, has traded quite sharply higher and is right now right up on the high of the day. So when I look across these assets, I, I, again, I, I don't think I've seen a, a um, a stranger set of price reactions in terms of it kind of going away from the normal correlations. Gold on its highs, T-notes on its lows. Can't remember that happening too many times after a kind of non-farm payrolls reading. So I think, I think the jury's still a bit out on what people think about all of this. But let's yeah, actually, yeah, go on. Yeah, I was going to say that, I mean, the market's still digesting all of this and, and what all of this means and assessing you know the taper and what that means to the movement and but let's not be around the bush this taper is going to be a soft taper right it's we're not talking about a complete withdrawal of that bond purchases we're talking about you know 15 billion or whatever the composition of uh you know t-notes and, and mortgage-backed securities uh is it's not a complete withdrawal it's just a deceleration really of that you know at Jackson Hole, Jerome Powell completely detached that tapering and the interest rate kind of movement as two very, very different policies. So we're talking about tapering, interest rates are you know, not going up for, for a long time. Um, but in terms of yeah, what, what this kind of means, like in, inflationary, um, this S&P is up 20% today, right? That's actually the yeah. sixth best year since 1950 and lots of strategists and investors have really been almost calling for a for a pullback right um we haven't seen a five percent pullback in a, in a in a reasonable amount of time now um so i think people were ready for this kind of wobble and you know to 
uh, to take some kind of chips off the table. And as you kind of mentioned earlier, a bit of profit taking uh, in, in light of something like this is probably quite healthy. Just looking at another kind of angle here, and I want to get your thoughts. So looking at the unemployment situation, um, well, actually looking at the job creation first. So in August, so notable job gains were in professional and business services, transportation, warehousing, private education, manufacturing, uh, and other more on the services side. Um, the unemployment, uh, sorry, the employment in retail uh, actually declined uh, over the month. So the retail side was the notable negative, and that kind of fits in obviously with that uptick in, in COVID cases. And when you look through to the unemployment rate, here's just thinking about it from a demographics point of view. So unemployment rates in adult men was 5.1%. Right, that's the average for adult men. But when you kind of break it down, uh, adult white males, the unemployment rate was four and a half percent, so below the average of five point one, um, and that that declined in August. But the rate for teenagers was eleven point two percent. So actually, in August, uh, teenage unemployment went up. Um, but then when you look at females, so the rate of adult women is four point eight percent. Adult blacks, 8.8. Asians, 4.6. Hispanics, 6.4. All of those categories uh, were unchanged. So really, it was only white male unemployment rate that that went down. And what I wanted to say was because I I think with with Biden's um, agenda, his kind of democratic agenda, where he's looking definitely to you know, address the rich-poor divide and it is very much focusing in on that lower-income portion of society uh, and then the kind of minorities. And I think that that has kind of fed through into the Fed's kind of mindset. And I know Powell certainly is on the same page with that. So looking at these numbers when you're splitting out uh, the minorities and seeing that they're not showing signs of improvement, do you think that's enough for Biden to hold off a little bit because he wants to see those those minority categories actually start to improve? Well, uh, to be honest, I'm not too sure. I think Biden's got enough on his plate at the moment with Afghanistan and his uh, approval rating really falling off a cliff. Yeah. I think he's he's got that that to deal with. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean that's it. I mean, his his approval rating. It's, you're right, because obviously Afghanistan's the big thing for him, and obviously the midterms um, approaching. But I think what's the, I guess once the midterms are out of the way, perhaps this is a 2022 story. Actually, thinking about it more, whether Fed, you know, in terms of when they start to hike rates or start to communicate that they might hike rates, um, maybe they'll just hang back a little bit until they see the lower income portion or some of these minority categories, you know, properly showing um, recovery. But, but look, let's, um, let's move on. Um, it's been some interesting uh, single stock uh, volatility uh, this week. Um, Robinhood, might have heard of it. Um, what's your view? Talk us through it, because uh, Robinhood's been uh, taking some serious downside. Yeah, Robinhood's had a pretty... V- pretty wild ride since its IPO kind of earlier this year. I think it was hit, hit, hit uh, you know, a high of $70 or so. 
Yeah, uh, just north trading. of 70, yeah. Yeah, and it's trading around, yeah, 40, 44 or so now. Um, but this is really based on um, Gensler, the SEC chairman, looking to potentially ban uh, payment for order flow. Um, so payment for order, order flow is essentially when they sell the market data, so retail trading data and order flow to these hedge funds and high-frequency trading firms like Citadel. And they use that really as a good sentiment gauge. Uh, and market makers, as uh, if you do some training with us, you should know, make some money, of course, on the spread between the bid and the ask, and they provide liquidity to the market. And they really, really like buying this high-frequency data from brokers like Robinhood, because it's very, very unlikely that they're actually going to lose money in a trade, making a market for retail versus institutional traders, because they're not really coordinated in terms of the retail flow, right? They're not all buying the same things, and they don't move in as much size. But now, you know, there's, they actually reported earnings very recently, and they had a 140% increase in this transaction-based revenue, okay, um, which is, you know, huge, good, good earnings for them. Uh, but that makes up 79% of their total revenue, actually. So quite a big proportion of their revenue is being driven by this payment for order flow. Uh, and again, this allows basically broker brokerages like Robinhood to outsource those trades to market makers. Contrary to the uproar that, that actually happened when basically retail traders found this out, um, this actually generally does result in a better price um, for the actual execution for the retail traders. But they didn't like that the shady hedge funds were selling, uh, were, were purchasing all this data to kind of front run uh, these retail trades. But Gensler of the SEC has basically said that, look, this payment for order flow is maybe uh, off the table, and it's kind of an inherent conflict of interest um, because these firms, like Robinhood, they really don't have an incentive to get the best prices for the retail traders by basically directing and routing those orders to the, those hedge funds. It's really whoever pays them the highest. Okay, so Gensler basically said, "Look, we're going to review this, uh, and of course, if he does indeed kind of step in and ban this." payment for order flow model, this poses huge risk for uh, Robinhood. And, you know, this payment for order flow, you know, to the actual advantage of uh, retail traders, this allows retail traders to trade commission free. Okay, yeah. so on, you know, more higher paying kind of, let's say a Hargreaves Lansdowne, where you pay £12 a trade or something like that, Robinhood and trading 212, you know, this is free, right? This is advantageous to you as a retail trader. You can get in and out of positions at no cost. But of course, if you're not paying for the product, chances are you are the product, right? So yeah. in, in everything, there's no free lunch generally. Yeah, I guess that's the irony, isn't it? If the SEC do actually clamp down on this, then in the end, it'll be the retail, little retail trader guy that probably pays the price. But what do you think? I haven't heard anything about possible timelines on this. I mean, the SEC don't operate at lightning speed, that's for sure. So, I mean, this is probably, we're not going to hear anything on this in terms of an SEC ruling for weeks, months, probably, right? No, I think from, from what I've heard and read, uh, they're stepping up their inquiries uh, in you know this, but also like, the gamification, right, and the behavioral prompts used by all these online brokerages. Um, you know, of course, we saw the 
just a massive explosion in retail trading and retail activity. And of course, this was driven by lockdowns and people not being able to go to the casinos perhaps last year. And they started to go, oh, okay, what's this trading thing? I can make a lot of money here. Um, so yeah, it's not going to be a, a, an immediate thing, but just even the thought of that being on the table is very, very worrying considering the, the proportion of revenue they actually generate from that kind of model. Yeah. And possibly an even bigger risk. Talk to me about PayPal. Yeah. So PayPal, the big kind of digital wallet, um, you know, what a company. I think it's such a hot space, the payment space, as, as we very well know, the Klarna's and the buy now, pay later's, the PayPal's, yeah. this kind of fintech innovation uh, that's really disrupting the traditional finance and banking sector. They, of course, have lots of different products, but they're actually exploring now ways to let users trade individual stocks. So they are, of course, a massive company, and this would really provide big, big competition uh, for Robinhood. So it's kind of not been a good week for Robinhood shareholders. They've had a wild ride anyway. You know, pop massive, I think it was like 50, 60% on either the first or second day of trading uh, to that $70. And then it's come all the way back down, but it's just not been a good good week. Um, one thing that has been a good week for them uh, to, to, to play both sides is Bitcoin uh, is obviously above 50,000. Ethereum's had a really good uh, time as of late and they make a lot of money uh, through crypto trading. And I think the difference between PayPal and a Robinhood is actually the proportion. So Robinhood is not really a stock trading app generally when you look when you drill down into it. It's actually yeah. an option and crypto trading app, which is more you know akin to a Coinbase or something like that. And I like think that. you do so, don't you do pay fees on those trades. Is that right? Through Robinhood? Or I think I the think, more complex the product, they do start actually charging fees. Yeah, I, I think they do uh, charge some fees uh, in some cases, but definitely the, the very plain vanilla stock trading is, is commission-free. So, so let's have it. What is your year-end price target, given that they IPO'd in, well, July, <laughs> so at 35 bucks, doubled to 70 in the first like week, now they're down to 44. So we're still above that 35 price, that, that IPO price. Do you, what's your view into the end of the year? Do you, do you see more downside towards that IPO price at 35 or what do you reckon? Yeah, I think um, definitely one thing that's not helped them is the lack of volatility in stock markets that we've actually seen you know, yeah, in gen general markets, true. which is definitely not to the benefit of them. Generally, these kind of Robin Hoods, and I would throw them in with Coinbase and arguably like a, a micro strategy, they tend to actually trade as kind of crypto proxies and like baskets. Yeah. So generally when Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all the other kind of cryptocurrencies are positive, you know, people are trading in and out of them, look, let's get involved. So generally a positive, as long as that keeps rolling on. Um, one thing that was quite difficult to read was that I think 40 or 50%, I think it was, of their crypto transaction revenue was actually through Dogecoin, the, the meme coin. So that, of course, this is why they, I think their shares fell 12% on that earnings release. Because when, when you actually they had a, you know, a great top line really uh, you know, beat. But when you drill down into these kind of revenue sources, it looked a bit subject. But again, this is like, 
to, to flip it back all the way to the kind of tapering story and inflation, you know, all these real uh, speculative, arguably, names that generate a lot of their earnings out into the future, you know, put Tesla in that bucket, Coinbase, Robinhood, the lack of kind of profitable companies, let's say uh, IPOs that we've seen, you know, they are really, really vulnerable uh, trading at the valuations they are trading at uh, to inflation being not transitory. And this yeah. is you know, something I discussed with Anne and uh, you know, wrote in a LinkedIn post. This is why Michael Burry is in the yeah. uh, opposite camp to a Kathy Wood basically saying, look, inflation, this is not transitory. Um, so it's actually a macro story back with a with a kind of micro story. But my price yeah. target, I'll, I'll go straight on the fence. I'll say market <laughs> perform, I'll say $50, $50. Okay. That's an interesting angle there. I like it. I mean, there's obviously those downside arguments, but then you flip that with that. Basically, if Bitcoin goes up, then actually that should be a real support for, for that kind of share price. That's interesting. And with Bitcoin, as you say, back above 50,000, that... That could be supportive. Interesting. Well, look, and, and maybe the the final point on Robin Hood, I guess another possible slight downside risk might be uh, COVID unlocking, although we've talking about Delta and maybe that that kind of opening up of economies just being held back a touch. But but generally the trend is obviously economies are opening up and maybe people are just not stuck in front of their PC anymore and, and getting dragged into trading. And so there's been a couple of other stock moves um, this week that are, you know, just very clearly demonstrating some kind of COVID fatigue. Um, so let's talk Zoom. Um, Zoom dropped 17%. I think it was on Wednesday after their earnings report. Um, why did that happen? And where do you see Zoom for the remainder of the year? Yeah, so we're looking at Zoom trading at what, 300, let's call it. They're down 17% year to date. They're down, I think, around 50% uh, off their kind of COVID highs, if you like. I mean, for me, that kind of work from home play, that basket that was trading and I put, you know, the, the Pelotons in that kind of basket, that work from home trade uh, really was unwound and on in November, right? Yeah. When we had that vaccine positive news and the, the real uh, potential for multiple vaccines coming to market, that was the time really to take some chips off the table and, and go, look, we've had a great ride. I think it was 400, 500% uh, in 2020. It had an amazing run. It's an amazing company, but do I love the stock? I didn't love it, you know, in that December, January period. And I I like it a li little bit more now, uh, but they had a, you know, they, they actually posted higher than expected earnings forecast for the year uh, very recently. The revenue met uh, expectations, but they really kind of guided down and they, they've cited some challenges, of course, as the economy reopens and, you know, people head back to work. I was in, in the office yesterday with uh, Will and Piers having a nice cold pint after work, um, but that kind of reopening uh, of offices and that trend away from Zoom. And I think most people are a little bit uh, sick of Zoom in the sense of there's yeah. a bit of Zoom fatigue. I think even uh, Eric Kwan, who is the uh, CEO, said, look, I'm a bit sick of <laughs> Zoom. That's probably not the best thing to say. Yeah. Um, as His a, as PR a CEO, department's not going to be happy with that. No, but um, I think that, look, their, their, their success moving forward is really going to be geared towards live events 
and the, the popularity of those and also their acquisition strategies. I think they right. uh, acquired a company called Five9 and those kind of other companies that they look, you know, post-pandemic, where are we going to grow? You know, what's our, our outlook? They're not going to grow at the, the rates that they were growing, of course, in 2020, because it was an exceptional year. It kind of reminds me of the, the food delivery companies that are IPO. And it's like, why are you buying DoorDash? Or why are you buying Deliveroo at, you know, when the pandemic's, at, you know, ending, right? Yeah. There's, you know, they, they had their moment in the sun and then it's time to go, okay, look, are these valuations, you know, it's, it's probably not for me. But, you know, that, that, that's definitely uh, something I've been watching. Peloton as well, of course, that was, I think, last week, actually. But I put it in the same basket. You know, they, they cut their, the price of their bike by $400. Again, do I love the company? Uh, I think it's a great company. Do I want a bike? Absolutely. Maybe at a lower <laughs> price. Um, I do think one nuanced thing with uh, Peloton that's very interesting to me is, that, is the demographic of actually those use it, right? I think it's such a unique demographic in the sense of who can afford a Peloton. Yeah. It's really the upper tier of, finance professionals, health professionals, those earning a, a decent chunk of money, right? And the unique thing about them is that they have an hour, an hour and a half of your time undivided, right? And they've got a, you know, you can argue and make jokes about the iPad on a normal bike, exercise bike, but they have an hour and a half of prime advertising time, potentially, to have, you know, and look at the demographic that they're advertising to. So again, I think they have a place going forward, but it's really about how they kind of shift in this post-pandemic world. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. And, we, and just just on the Zoom front, because it was such a really interesting example. So they delivered their earnings report, and actually they hit expectations, and actually they 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 made one billion dollars in quarter two in terms Amazing. of revenue. Right, great number, but stock price dropped seventeen percent, and that is because it's about the deceleration of revenue growth. So even though revenue was up 54% to hit 1 billion, and when you just think about that as a standalone, that's like, wow, up 54% hitting a billion, amazing, except not amazing, because in quarter one, their revenue growth was 191%. In quarter four last year, their revenue growth was 369%. That revenue growth is trending very quickly, very sharply down. And I think when you start getting the like for like comparisons, which we'll start to get, I think quarter three figures are going to be interesting, quarter four even more so. And, and can they even keep pace with last year, never mind, you know, beating it? And the answer is almost certainly going to be no, unless they can, as you say, um, diversify. Um, but yeah, okay. Well, look, interesting chat. I think just kind of sum up, it's all a little bit, you know, we're coming into, you know, summer's done. Um, you know, you're back to work and it just feels a little bit depressed uh, out there in markets. And I think these these numbers from the Labor Department in the US today just throw up or just exacerbate that depression a bit more where it's, oh, God, hang on, that inflation, maybe it's not quite as transitory as we were hoping. And in the meantime, that Delta variant looks to have been damaging some of this growth momentum. So I think, yeah, the outlook just looks a little bit more cloudy and the cloudiest it has probably been for a number of months. So there we go. Um, so that's it for this week. Thanks for joining me, Eddie. 
Thanks, Chris. And uh, up next week in terms of highlights, I mean, actually just be aware there's a US bank holiday on Monday. Um, so markets should be super quiet. And on the data front, we got uh, an Aussie rate decision um, Tuesday. We got German ZEW on Tuesday. We've got Bank of Canada on Wednesday. We've got the ECB on Thursday. So it's uh, uh, definitely a sort of central bank heavy week and then a bit of US PPI figures um, to, to wrap up the week. But, um, but that's it for now, guys. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Thanks, Eddie. And hopefully, Anthony Chung will be back next week to, to steady the ship. So we'll see you then. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.